Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hello, welcome to today's podcast. Don't forget to join us over on the Facebook group. Just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. That's where we all talk about the podcast and everything that's going on surrounding it. You can also get my free engagement guide. Engagement is how do you keep your dog with you on a walk? You know, so many times people are focusing on the recall. How do you get your dog to come back? But it's like there's a there's a whole other side to that that just so often gets ne- neglected, which is why is your dog trying to run off from you all the time in the first place? And that's what I focus on. That's what I specialize in, keeping your dog interested in you and building a relationship with them so they don't want to run away from you as soon as you let their lead off. You can get that engagement guide for free at www.barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide. So go over there, check that out and uh, download that. This podcast is sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box are a really healthy, natural dog food based in the UK. One of the few dog foods that has a five-star rating on All About Dog Food, and they're great for fussy eaters, dogs that have sensitive stomachs. It's perfectly portioned. It's delivered to your door. It's just a great company. And for people that listen to the podcast, they're giving you a 75% discount on your first order. So well worth checking out. To get that discount, go to buttonupbox.com slash nickbenger. Today, I'm talking to Patricia McConnell. Patricia is a certified applied animal behaviorist and has worked with clients for serious behavior problems since 1988. She got her PhD in zoology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's well known for her books, including For the Love of a Dog, The Other End of the Leash, and her recent memoir, The Education of Will, all of which have made her a very sort of sought out international speaker and yeah i've been hugely excited about this one for a while so i hope you enjoy it as much as i did let's get into it well let me start out but i know we kind of i said this via email but um i have a kind of a funny story because when i uh, my first seminar experience was uh, seeing you in Bristol at the Paintworks, which is quite a nice venue as well. And I remember yeah, it was great. Yeah, it's a nice venue, and I remember hearing you talk. And afterwards, when you were kind of hanging around and taking photos and signing books and all that kind of thing, um, I remember going up and talking to you, and you were really nice uh, because. I was just shaking like a leaf. I was so oh. nervous because it's the first time I'd met anyone that I really uh, looked up to. Because, I mean, I was still probably about 16 or something. But uh, And while all my friends were kind of idolizing like footballers and stuff, I was idolizing <laughs> dog trainers. So, yeah, but you, you, were, you were very kind to me. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Oh, goodness. Well, first, Garsh... Um that's very kind of you to say some such nice things about me, but it's, I don't know, Nick, it's just, it's so easy. I mean, why not be nice to people, you know, especially dog lovers and especially people who are giving you their time. I mean, what is more, that's really all we have, right? You know, <laughs> It's the most limited resource we have. And when people come and spend a half a day or a whole day or even an hour with me, I just feel this this one great responsibility to make it worth their time. And I also feel this, this great sense of gratitude that they've gracious me give graciously giving me their time. It's just, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So, so thank you for coming up and talking to me. You know, I was so shy originally when I was your age, when you came up, Uh um, I, well, for years and in my 20s, I actually took up needlework because I couldn't look people in the eye when we were talking about important things. I was just painfully shy, Nick. Uh-huh. So I get that, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you wouldn't think it now because obviously you, you do a lot of public speaking and you come across as very confident. It's, you know, it's just it's a practice effect. I mean, it's just like dogs. You know, there's a certain amount of neurological memory and muscle memory and... 
I just I I had to start speaking when I was at university, and I was a um, teaching assistant, and so I taught the intro zoology biology lab. And I had to speak to my students, and I was terrified at first, and but I didn't have a choice, and so that that really got me started. And um, then just gradually over time, I got more and more comfortable. Well, I I remember quite a lot of that talk, even though it's quite a long time ago. And it's funny that you know today we're talking about emotions because a lot of that talk was was really about emotions and i'm curious from my own perspective to see how things have developed and and if you've changed any of your thoughts on on some of the things that you brought up um so so we'll see but also you know you you spoke about kind of um being kind to people and and being generous with your time and that was one of the things that kind of stood out when i saw your talk as well because um well two things firstly um a lot a lot of a lot like a lot of the other guests actually and i'm sure it's just a, a thing of being successful in a field but you seem to have read everything <laughs> you know you there's oh, so many oh. references to so many uh different books and then also you seem to know a lot of people like i remember you telling one brilliant story uh to highlight a point about emotion about alex the parrot right do you remember that yeah, I don't remember the exact story. Do you remember? Because um, I love talking about Alex. Do you remember the specific part? Was it was it the one where he was left at the vet's office and he said, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I love you," as his owner walked away? <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> it was that one. It's hard to forget that one, isn't it? Oh. That that one. Uh, well, maybe we should give some background as to to who Alex the parrot is. Absolutely, yes. Alex the parrot, who very sadly is no longer with us, was the parrot of a brilliant scientist named Irene Pepperberg. And she was interested not really in, in teaching a parrot to, quote, speak or use English, but she wanted into his brain. And she wanted to know whether a parrot could understand not just a label of a noun, you know, this is a ball, this is a, this is that, she wanted to know if a parrot could understand something that was abstract. So an example of that is the concept of size. Bigger versus smaller. There is no such thing as a bigger. You can't tell your dog to go find a bigger, <laughs> right? Sure. You know, there's, it's, it's not a noun. It's a concept. This is bigger than something else. This is smaller than something else. And so she used teaching him words to try and find out what he could figure out. And and he blew her and much of the world away in that he absolutely could understand concepts like different or same, bigger or smaller. But it also, it, oh man, this work she did, it expanded and expanded into understanding more and more and more of his internal emotions. So one of my favorite stories is... Um, Actually, I don't know if I told it at that seminar, Nick, but she, uh, Irene told a story of when she was relatively early on in her research, she had no funding. She struggled for funding all of her time, by the way, with this amazing parrot. And she had to borrow a video camera from the athletic department who has all the money right oh, over wow. in this country. And so she had to borrow a video camera, but she'd only have it for a couple hours. So she wanted to video Alex responding to all these different questions, and they didn't have a lot of time. And so she had to do a lot of a lot of sessions with him far longer than she would normally do. And so she switched trainers. She had a lot of sessions with him, and he was clearly getting a little – he was sort of past his comfort zone. And he started – she was taping him working with a trainer who he clearly didn't like. And that's an interesting concept right there. Why do we know he didn't like her, right? Uh -huh. But so, so what was he doing? So she kept asking him to answer a question, and he kept not answering it. And she finally, with clear frustration in her voice, said, Alex, what's different? And he said, oh, just go away. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And then, and then another, I, I won't go too long on Alex, because we are talking about dogs after all, but... Um, one of the most interesting cognitive things he did is he had learned a lot of colors, he, but he hadn't learned gray. He's an African gray parrot, right? So he looked in a mirror one day and he said, what color, Alex? 
Oh, wow. He did. I know. I know. It's an oh, wow moment, isn't it? So I think, you know, that opens up this whole world of what's going on in the brains of the animals that we live with, that we love. And I think the, the answer is vague, but the answer is way more than a lot of people have thought. Although I think a lot of dog lovers will be like, yeah, I knew that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a great world right now, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's... It's very, it's definitely very interesting. I just, I mean, for podcast listeners, this will be out of sync, but I just recently did a podcast with Bob Bailey and he was saying, um, it, well, in reference to, I think it was specifically in reference to dogs that dogs aren't as smart as people think they are, but they aren't as stupid as they think that they can. Do you know what I mean? They so people, tend to, people tend to go one way or the other, I think was, the, was the point. And, and, and I think they go one way about about X and then the other way with Y. Uh-huh. You know, one one of my, I love that he said that. Um, I butchered the quote, well, but. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. No, we totally got it, Nick. We all got it. We we absolutely know what you meant. Um, and so here's here's my example of that is, is, or one example anyway, is one of the things that surprises me is how little people use anthropomorphism in a in a constructive way. So example, I I cannot tell you how many thousands, if not tens of thousands, of people have said to me, Oh, my dog's not scared. When the dog is in a context in which they would be scared, the dog is signaling like a neon flashing sign that the dog is scared. And yet the per and you know, the owner is like, No, 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 he's fine. Go ahead and pet him. And the dog is Turned his head away, his mouth is clamped shut, he's not looking at me, his tail is tucked. You know, it's like your dog's scared. Or the dog is being aggressive because he's in pain. Um, so so it seems like on the one hand, you know, we're very often to not be anthropomorphic. It's like, yeah, I'd be scared in that circumstance when it would help our dogs. And then on the other hand, be that way when it's not helpful, like saying, Well, he's I I know he knows not to do that because look how guilty he looks. When right. we know that's not a look of guilt, it's a look of appeasement, and a dog is actually worried about the consequences of something. But that's different than guilt, right? Mm. Yeah, I I very specifically remember you you talking about guilt, and one of the other things that I was desperate to ask you about was jealousy because you, you spoke about jealousy, and um, there seemed to be some kind of well, so, some debate over whether dogs can feel jealousy or whether it's uh, really just uh, an extension of resource guarding. Yeah, I think it's still a bit of a debate. I think the, I think people, it's you know, the people are beginning to shift a little, and that more and more people are getting on board. So, just for background to your listeners, there there have been arguments by biologists, psychologists, and philosophers who take all this very seriously that there are basic emotions like fear and anger and there are secondary emotions that require more cognitive ability like guilt or jealousy. And I think those are very different. I think guilt is pretty complicated and I can talk about that in a minute, but let me focus on jealousy for a second because I don't think it's that complicated. I don't think jealousy requires a lot of cognitive um, depth. You know, I think jealousy is just a form of basically, it's a kind of anger or frustration. You know, somebody else has it, whatever it is. I don't. (laughs) I want it. And I'm not happy about it. I mean, it's just not that complicated. You don't need to be able to solve an equation to be able to feel jealous. And so I think dogs can be jealous. And I, you know, this is something that most dog owners who have more than one dog just start laughing because is there any of us out there who doesn't have a dog who comes up and noses another dog away when it's getting petted? I mean, could there be a world where that doesn't happen? And I don't remember, I'm so sorry, I don't remember the name of the researcher, but there's a psychologist who looked at what what pre-verbal children do to, to li- being labeled as jealous and because they can't tell us they feel jealous, right? We just watch them and we label that behavior as jealousy. 
And and then he looked at dogs and basically said dogs do all the same things. So if you know if it's a duck, then you need to call it a duck. And if it's called jealousy in children, whose brains we can't get into because they can't talk to us, then we need to call it jealousy in dogs. So, yeah, I think dogs can be jealous. I don't think it's that complicated. And by the way, this is another species. But if your listeners, all of you out there, haven't seen Franz Duwall. Um, Franz, and then it's D, small D-E, and then capital W-A-A-L. If you haven't seen his video on jealousy in monkeys, primates, it's absolutely worth it. He did a study where he gave um, one, there were two monkeys side by side. I think they were rhesus macaques. They were macaques of some kind anyway. And so, so one got um, a cucumber for doing a task, and the other got a grape for doing the task. Monkeys love Grapes, way more than cucumbers. And when the monkeys saw the other getting a grape, when all he got was a cucumber, he literally threw the cucumber out of the cage towards the experimenter and then pounded on the cage and grabbed the bars like somebody in a bad prison movie and shook them. It's hysterical. If you want a good laugh, watch it. But if that's not jealousy, I don't know what is. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because I I wouldn't have known the reference, but I remember the video or I, I assume there's a video. I, I just remember. Yes. I remember yes, that. There's a great video. That stuck in yeah, my just mind. Google it. You'll find it instantly. I have it on my, I did a Facebook live on emotions and it's on that. But if you just Google Franz Duwal and jealousy, it'll come up. Okay. So you, you sound quite positive about the idea of dogs maybe experiencing jealousy then. I am. I just, I can't imagine any other explanation for the behavior that we see relentlessly of one dog getting something and then another dog coming in, pushing it away, trying to hog the attention. Um, and sometimes, if not getting it, can act in um, a somewhat aggressive way. So how does that relate to, say, re- uh, resource guarding? Is that just jealousy? or? That's a really good question. I think it's more than that. And this is, but this is something I think we all need to ponder and discuss because I don't have a definitive answer to that. I think, I think one of the emotions that drives resource guarding, believe it or not, is, well, probably I think people would believe it, is fear. And it's, it's a different kind of fear. It's not fear. I'm afraid I'm going to be hurt. Fear. I'm afraid I'm going to be attacked. It's fear of losing something. You know, I'm going to lose something. And so, you know, being anthropomorphic again, I think I might argue perhaps some would disagree in a constructive way. People fear losing things too. Mm. Objects, food, power, and it can make them very aggressive, right? Mm. Um, and so I think, I think the fear of losing something and the desire to be in control are 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 slightly different things mm. than sort of pure simple jealousy he's got it because jealousy basically means you don't have it right somebody else has it and resource guarding is almost the opposite is i've got it and i'm afraid i'm going to lose it does that make sense yeah it does i'm, I'm just trying to i mean i'm thinking but, out loud here yeah yeah because i mean there are all, all kinds of animals that will try to take resources off of other animals Mm-hmm. And and there are a lot of animals that do that that we wouldn't um, attribute jealousy to. Yeah, and I think um, I just think they're fundamentally different. And I think I love this conversation because I've never. That's a great question, Nick. I've never quite put those two things together. I do. I do think a really important distinction is whether you have it. And don't want to lose it mm. or don't have it and are distressed that somebody else does. You know, I think those are very fundamentally different and it might trigger different emotional centers. Um, I don't know, but it's worth thinking about. Right? Well, I'm, I mean, like if an animal, for example, let me give you an example, actually. Yeah. So I have snakes that's one of my other hobbies i have re- oh lots i of love reptiles. that you have snakes good for you i love snakes <laughs> i do so we people traditionally wouldn't um wouldn't consider snakes capable of an emotion like jealousy mm. but they but if 
they can see that another snake has a, a rat or a mouse or something, they're certainly mm-hmm. going to try to steal that from the other snake. Mm-hmm. So they're going to try and take that resource. But mm-hmm. but that isn't the same as jealousy, I would assume. That's Oh, you asked the best questions. Um, this is really fun brain work. I love this. I don't know. I mean, the the little bit I do know about reptiles, and there's really it's very very little. But Gord, you probably know Gordon Burkhart. He's done a lot of a lot of research on reptiles, and he's basically arguing that the emotion there is a more complicated emotional life in reptiles than we think. Um, he has some great studies on play and turtles. Um, uh, so. I think I, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, one, you know, one of the things I know the most about Nick is the emotional centers of the mammalian brain, which are supposedly, and I hate the way this is, the, the, this is described sort of hierarchical, hierarchically, but there's the reptilian brain, the very primal emotions, less cognition, and then there's the quote mammalian brain, which is supposedly more evolutionary advanced. So I know a lot about the mammalian mm. brain, but I don't know a lot about the the actual brain structure of a snake. So what do what do you know? I'm so curious. God, not a lot. <laughs> That's why I've got you on the show, Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> Who out there? Somebody out there knows more than we do. Uh I think with snakes, even in a hypothetical world where we said that they are capable of jealousy, it would be very difficult to tell that from body language because they don't have the same kind of um, ability to, uh, you know, they haven't got facial expressions, for example, or right. It's, right. it's much more difficult to to judge it based on that, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. maybe what you were getting at in the links between children and, and dogs. Yeah, I think, and I think that is a really important link. Um, one of the things I've argued in um, the book, and the seminars I did for the love of a dog, and I think that's the seminar. You know, that I was talking about that book when when I was um, talking with you in England is um, this this extremely important link between dogs and people related to how expressive our faces are in terms of our internal emotions. You know, dogs. If you look at the faces of dogs, they are. For, compared to most mammals, they are amazingly expressive, just in the sense that they have all this musculature that can move in very finely tuned, nuanced ways, way more than most other mammals. I mean, I horses are a great example. I adore horses. I I rode horses all weekend. Um, when I was in high school, I'd drive in the dark to the stable, um, and I'd ride all Saturday and then all Sunday. I love horses, and I knew them pretty well. And I, you know, I learned to read them pretty well, but they're harder to read than dogs, and their faces are less expressive. You can certainly t- tell when they're fearful, et cetera, et cetera, but they don't have the same kind of complicated musculature that dogs have that is very similar to ours. You know, when I was writing for the love of a dog, I expected there to be a lot of comparisons between the expression of fear, for example, um, on the face of a dog and the face of a person. But Nick, I never expected them to be so close. I never expected it to be muscle to muscle. You know, specifically, this muscle changes when dogs and people are fearful. You know, the muscles that pull the corners of the mouth, the commissure, back towards the ears, those are the same muscles in dogs and people. And those are triggered in both species when we're fearful. So I I honestly think that's part of the explanation to this amazing mystery of why why do we have this biological miracle, this relationship that we have with dogs. I mean, it is it is so unique. It is an amazing biological miracle that we're in a relationship with a species that is yes, they're mammals, but you know, they're not they're not that closely related to us in many, many ways. Sort of a glass half empty, half full, but but we're pretty far apart. But we can, you know, the we we share so much with dogs in term in terms of facial expressions. And I honestly believe that's part of why 
we have this amazing bond. It's just crazy that people would risk their life to save a dog, and people do. And it's crazy that dogs would risk their life to save us. Just evolutionarily, biologically, genetically, that's just crazy. There's no benefit in it. But if we're bound by this 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 emotional connection that is a incredibly important part of the success of our species that in some ways we're almost helpless. You know, it's the whole puppy effect. It's like, who does not look at a puppy face and go like, oh, right? <laughs> Well, you said something there that I, I wanted to touch on, actually. Yeah, because yeah. I, um, Someone said to me recently, which got me thinking that, you know, when you see these videos of dogs um, saving humans, you know, for example, right. if, you, if you see a video of someone being attacked and a dog runs in and attacks the person that's attacking them, someone was mm-hmm. saying to me that, that that is just the dog perceiving threat to itself and it appears that the dog is is uh, protecting the human but actually it's just self-preservation and i was wondering whether you think that's true or or not i think it's complicated and i i so here's my guess and this is just a guess because we don't know right you know we can't ask them but but I've, you know, as somebody who has livestock and has working border collies and have seen dogs in situations in which their humans were in great danger and the dogs were in great danger, et cetera, seen a lot of variations of what happened next. Um, I think sometimes at, at sort of the lowest level on the moral chain, I think it's about arousal. Um, and so, you know, some dogs sees sort of some big high arousal attack going on, it just sort of jumps in. Um, And I think that happens with dog fights where sometimes dogs just, just, you know, we know that emotional arousal is contagious. It's part of why humans can be so dangerous. It's part of why there are riots. It's part of why people can get horribly hurt at a sports event. Emotional arousal is contagious. So sometimes I think... That's what it is. That really uh, clicks with me when you say Does that. It? Because um, I spent a lot of time when I was younger around big groups of dogs. And you're right. You know, if two of them um, start fighting, then everyone mm-hmm. jumps in. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, that really resonates. And I hadn't put the two and two together. Together. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, just imagine a sports, you know, a soccer game you know, or, or a bar. It's, it's just, that happens. Well, the, but, other, the other thing that happens yeah. as well is, is people yeah. often report their own dog bites them, you know, in, in the, yes. in the melee. It's, it's like uh-huh. the dog doesn't really discriminate. It just kind of runs in and bites whatever's there. And that exactly happened to me, Nick. I was, I had a very aggressive view who was challenging. So I have working border collies. I have sheep. I have working border collies. And I had a very aggressive you who was going after my dogs. And I had a young border collie who needed to learn, you you have teeth in your mouth and you can protect yourself. Um, because, you know, sheep, I think less probably in your country, but in, but in the U.S., a lot of people just imagine sheep as these sort of fluffy, docile, white Disney characters, who are passive and helpless and docile. And as anybody around sheep knows, that's not true. They have heads like anvils and they can be, if panicked and and feel the need to protect themselves or, and this is a whole other conversation about emotions in sheep, but um, some of them can be very aggressive around food. They can be resource guarders. Um, I believe some of them can just be grumpy and irritable for whatever ovine reasons that they have. Anyway, so I'm trying to teach this dog that it's okay to face off on a sheep who's staring at her with her head down about to charge into her, that she can go lunge in and nip the sheep on the nose. Not, you know, not a bite, not an injurious bite, but a nip as in, no, you can't attack me. I have a way to protect myself. I have a weapon inside my mouth. And so I'm trying to teach best to do that guess who she bit? <laughs> and I was, yeah, I was trying to get her all hyped up. And, go, 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 
come on, come on, come on. Yeah, and she, yeah, she bit my leg. I, I am happy to say it wasn't a bad bite at all. And I'm happy to say that in a rare moment of actually being emotionally together, I did not yell at her because <laughs> it was not her fault, right? Mm. So, yeah, it happens. But, but, but the other end of that continuum, I think, includes dogs who truly perceive their individual owner in danger or another dog in danger and act on it. Um, those are those are people who have read the other end of the leash know there's a story in there about one of my first border collies, Luke, cool hand Luke, heard um, I was basically in a small pen with a Scottish blackface, uh, Colleen, grumpy Colleen, who just had a lamb. I went in to give her some grain and she perceived me apparently, as a marauding wolf and attacked me. And this was silent. there, So there was no arousal. I didn't yell at her. I didn't say a thing. She just started, I was in a little pen and I had nothing in my hands. And she started going after me. And at first I was like, oh, Colleen, for heaven's sakes. But then I couldn't get out. I, I, I couldn't get to the gate to get out. And she kept going after me. And I didn't have anything, um, I didn't have anything appropriate. I tried the pail and that just, you know, a little piece of plastic against an anvil is not very effective. Uh-huh. That had no effect. I, I, I had nothing. And, you know, she, at one point she got me with her horns and, you know, got hurt my thigh and I'm in a corner and she's like smashing her head. Um, I dodge her and she smashed her head against the wall so hard that paint chips from the ceiling would fly down and fall. And I was getting like, okay, this isn't funny anymore. First of all, I was like, oh, for heaven's sakes, Colleen. And, and as happens in life, sometimes all of a sudden things changed. And I started feeling like, okay, this isn't okay. I could get really badly hurt in here. I was alone at the farm. I would have been alone for three days. I could have been badly hurt and no one could have helped me. It's a long way from the barn to the house. And then, I, and I, but I didn't say a word. And then I heard thwap. And that was Luke's paws on the top of, it was a horse stall on the four foot high section of the, of the barrier um, between this pen and the outside of the barn. And Luke leapt up like a military dog. He'd never done that in his life. He'd never, ever done that. Dove in, got in between me and her, bit at her head while I got out, came out, and he had teeth broken because she had smashed into his face. He was actually bleeding from his mouth. Now, where was the arousal? I wasn't yelling. It was absolutely silent. I remember the sound of her hitting. I mean, I remember it so well. I remember the sounds better than anything. And sheepdogs do learn that that sheep can cause a lot of damage. So was he purposely trying to save me? That's my best guess. Do I know that? Of course not. Mm. You know, but but I think... You know, the social bond of dogs is so profound. And people who dismiss any and all incidents like that. I had a man actually, Nick, who um, after I came out with For the Love of a Dog, who said, oh, that's just garbage. Dogs are just, you know, programmed. It's just sort of this automatic, genetically programmed thing that, you know, there's no such thing as love in dogs. And and that's just wrong. <laughs> I'm just going to say right out straight. That's just I don't think that under, that keeps in mind the biology, the psychology, the sociology, the culture of dogs. So I think dogs can love us, and I think dogs can understand that we're in danger sometimes and act to protect us. I think there's some cases where people see it as um, an act of saving somebody where it's not, but I also, you know, I also think there are times where it it. How else would you explain it? You know, there's really no other good explanation. Mm, that's a that's an incredible story, and all of these things can can coexist. You know, there can can be times when it's self preservation. There could be times when it's just arousal, and and potentially there can be times when the animal or the dog is actually trying to protect you. Exactly, exactly. You know, I think it's just I think that's just a perfect way of basically saying it's far more complicated. We don't need to. It's not always either or, you know, life isn't that black and white and dogs are so complicated. 
emotionally and psychologically and socially that there's no reason it couldn't be a mix of things depending on the context. Uh, and and f actually, you've just kind of reminded me another thing. Um, one of the things I've kind of been thinking about recently as well is because I've been working with a lot of dogs that are guarding breeds, how... Um, how suspicious and and even I would go as far as to say fearful they are mm -hmm. as puppies and then how that now I'm not saying this was intentional but how that could have maybe been um it, a huge advantage in the breeding right if, if absolutely if you have a dog that's more fearful and is more prone to going into self-preservation then you have a dog that is probably more likely to protect you or seemingly protect you because of, because they're uh, they're just perceiving threat easier. Oh, I think you've hit on something that that's brilliant, Nick. I think you've hit on something so important that I don't hear people talk about very much. Is I, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of what makes an animal a good guard animal is the perception of threat, and and what then if you back up one step, what creates a perception of threat, right? Um fear. <laughs> and so, you know, I've seen, uh, you may work with more guarding breeds. I'm so curious. I want to hear more about this. But, but you know, a lot of the breeds I've worked with, um, German Shepherds, for example, in this country, there are a lot of extremely fearful German Shepherds. There are a lot of extremely fearful Doberman Pinschers. Um, and I think, you know, I think the trick with the kind of selective breeding that's gone on to breed a good guard dog is to breed an individual who who can balance that, you know, who can be confident, who is not overreactive, who is stable, um, but can sort of switch on when necessary. I actually had a great Pyrenees sheep guarding dog who was Tulip, who was brilliant at that. She loved everybody. She was, um, you would never call her a fearful dog, but yet when there was a real threat, I mean, I was attacked by a ram once, two dogs were in a dog fight once at my farm, and both times she turned into a freight train. <laughs> she just went from zero to 60 and just scared everything with, she just, she lunged in on full attack mode never hurt anything, but basically separated the dog fight, got the ram off of me, even when my border collie had tried and couldn't. Um, so, you know, finding an individual who still has that guarding instinct, but who's not fearful inappropriately and not fearful in a way that compromises their quality of life, I think that's tricky business. Yeah, I, I have an interesting story about perception of threat. Because oh, tell. <laughs> I remember I went... Uh, we got in the car and we for a few hours to visit a friend that had gone to university and I'd never been to this area before and literally the second we step out of the car across the road someone is being mugged and oh. I was so off like I, I'd never been here before and it was a rough area and I was kind of thinking like is this normal <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like first my first experience is here and the guy had the guy that was being mugged had a massive American Akita on the lead, and um, the person that was mugging him was completely didn't seem to be bothered by that at all. But what was interesting is the Akita was just looking around, and there didn't seem to be any perception of threat. You know, the Akita, the Akita yeah. just didn't seem to even realize that anything was going on. Um, which I thought was was really interesting. Yeah, because yeah. Obviously, I'm assuming that um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm making huge assumptions here, but I'm assuming that guy probably got this bigger Akita to protect him in some manner from exactly what is happening. <laughs> and no kidding, <laughs> the Akita just <laughs> didn't even realize. Oh, the irony! <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> wow, I you know, and 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 I wonder, you know, was it. I mean, obviously, we're just playing with this, but, you know, was was this mugging sort of very calm? You well, know, guy comes up with a gun in his pocket and says, mm. give me your money. Well, the guy was swearing, but he wasn't getting physical. He wasn't pushing him around. He wasn't yeah, or, or yeah. anything like that. And I, I really think that's what it is. The Kita just didn't seem to realize that anything was right. going on. Right. Um, yeah. So. 
Um, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because I feel sorry for the guy. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny in a sense, but yeah, I know, I know what you mean. It's also unfortunate for that guy. And, but that reminds me of a study that was done that, um, I was a, well, I'll just, I'll just say it was, it was a published study. Um, I thought it had serious problems with it. But basically, they were looking to see if a dog would protect somebody um, or call for help. It was actually, it was, it was really more about calling for help. So, so they had a person pretend to fall on the ground and have a heart attack. In another case, they had a person pretend to have a bookcase fall, falling on them and hurting them and then look to see what the dog would do. And the dogs, the dogs were like, la, la, la. They were sniffing around. I mean, they did nothing. You know, the dogs like basically did absolutely nothing. And it was the, the, assumption made the conclusion made from the study was that dogs don't really save people and i thought it was profoundly flawed because you can't fake having a heart attack you know any more than you can fake having an epileptic seizure or you can't fake that right um and if you were having a heart attack would a dog really know what that meant anyway right Mm -hmm. and you can't fake how you would feel if you if a heavy bookcase fell on you and injured you horribly. You can't fake that, right? Right. So, I mean, I think it wasn't giving dogs very much credit because if there was truly some kind of related emergency, then, you know, then we could ask, would the dogs know to do something? And my guess is, I mean, I think there's just thousands, tens of millions of times that we're in crisis and dogs either don't know it or don't know what to do or don't care, you know, whatever. But there are certainly cases where, and I should actually stop and say, and again, being anthropomorphic, I hope in a constructive way, that happens with people all the time, right? Hmm. You know, the classic story of somebody getting mugged or attacked and beaten while everybody stands around. Oh yeah, right. Certainly. Well, I mean, that that literally comes back to my story because I it, I I just you, got out of the car. What did you do? By the way? Yeah, <laughs> I just got out of the car and I was like, I think I I would like to think that I would have said something if it was an environment I was more familiar with. But having yeah. just got out of the car in this new city, and this is the first thing I see. It, there's kind of like you. Know, the, you're just kind of getting your bearings and you're kind of like is this like that's i remember just thinking that is this normal like is this what goes on here <laughs> because, <laughs> right, right. And, and, and my friends were kind of like oh no don't you know they just kind of ushered me in they were just kind of like oh you know don't say anything don't say anything. just don't look don't look just keep walking <laughs> but you know i would argue that you were psychologically emotionally stunned um and that's you know, that's one of the things that happens to survivors and victims of trauma. You know, my memoir is about trauma and dogs and people. And, and I had a lot of traumas in my life. And one of the hardest things about recovering from trauma is often that you felt like you let yourself down. You didn't let somebody else down. You let yourself down because you, you, you basically didn't do as much as you thought you should have to protect yourself. And in most circumstances, People are literally just stunned. I was actually um, working with a young woman. It was during the campaign, the midterm elections, and um, I was working for a particular politician, and so was was she. She was a university student, and some guys came up and did some really – it was a low-grade sexual assault. They basically – said a bunch of very strong sexual innuendos while they were, quote, secretly videotaping her. Um, And she was stunned and she didn't say anything. She didn't know how to respond. Um, I ended up tracking those guys down and gave them a piece of my mind and talked with her at length afterwards. And she what she felt worst about was that she had just not done. She didn't know how to respond. So do dogs get stunned, too? You know, I don't know. Um. I've seen sheep herding dogs where where things happen to them that they didn't expect. Um, my my competition dog, my sheepdog trial competition dog, Maggie, got attacked by a huge you and it was it was scary. I mean, it's hard to imagine what it's like to stand behind a hundred and eighty pound animal who's using all of the force she can muster against you. It's really impressive. And she went after Maggie and it gutted Maggie. I mean, it took me a couple of 
maybe like four weeks to sort of get her back. Um, and I think she had no idea. She'd never happened to her before. I have pretty easy sheep to deal with. Um, she had no idea what to do. And she ran away and, and then sort of came back. And then I ended up intervening. Um, and, and I, you know, I have, I, I doubt Maggie faults herself, you know, has this whole cognitive story like we humans do of like, maybe I should have done something. Why didn't I protect myself? What was wrong with me? But I do think it left her feeling vulnerable because she had no plan B. She had no sort of next thing to do, you know. So it brings up a really interesting question, I think, about can dogs be stunned by something that happens to them? And then what are the consequences of that? Does it just mean they don't they don't have a behavior in their sort of behavioral repertoire the next time it happens? Um do they ever think, why didn't I do something? I I don't know. I mean, I think that gets into the very gray area between the cognitive abilities and the emotional depth of a human's existence and a dog's existence. Well, I know you also wanted to talk about guilt, which we think we ended up going on such a different detour. But you said at the beginning you wanted to talk about guilt as well. Yeah, thanks for bringing. We could talk for how long do we have here? Are you running I out of time? No, 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 no. I was just asked, suggesting we spoke for another couple of days. And <laughs> there's so much. It's so fun talking with you. And there's so much to talk about. Um, no, I'm fine on time. Um, I'll just make it fine. Okay. So <laughs> guilt. Yeah. <laughs> so guilt. You know, think about, you know, what is guilt? What is the definition of guilt? Guilt depends on understanding that there's a certain social code that you've broken, and that you feel bad about it. And that's the important part. You have to feel bad about it for it to be guilt. People break social codes all the time, but don't feel guilty. People who never feel guilty are sociopaths, right? Okay. <laughs> and do horrible things and never feel guilty about it. So guilt is a very important emotion in a social species like us. There's, you know, there's no question about it because if you feel guilty about something, it's going to potentially change your behavior the next time. So it's a very useful emotion to have in human society. But it is very complex because, again, it means you've broken a, a, a sort of a moral code and then you feel badly about it. So basically, so so here's a, a sort of a, an analogy. So say your dog gets into the garbage, which they're not supposed to do. And you've made it clear they've gotten to the garbage before. You know, you've said their name, you've corrected them, you've done something. You've, you know, hopefully not gone after them because it was your fault, right? Because they could get into the garbage. But, you know, we can all get frustrated by stuff like that. So your dog gets into the garbage and, you know, eats some chicken bones, um, they're breaking a kind of a social code that you've established a policy in your house where the dogs don't get to eat out of the garbage pail. Do you think they feel guilty about it? I think the idea of my dogs, I have two border collies and a cavalier feeling guilt about grabbing a piece of food out of the garbage can is very small. <laughs> I just cannot imagine my Willie or Maggie snatching food out of the garbage and feeling like, oh, I'm a bad dog. I should <laughs> not have done that. I mean, I basically think they're like, yow, I scored some chicken. Uh-oh, here she comes. <laughs> you know? I better look appeasing. And so so the the look of guilt, and this again, this is being reverse anthropomorphic in a not constructive way, that look that dogs give us that we call guilt, most progressive trainers, animal behaviorists, psychologists agree is appeasement. And appeasement is very different than guilt. So if, I, if I'm in a restaurant and the waitress is busy and harassed, but I want to switch out the regular fries for the sweet potato fries, you don't call them fries, chips, that's okay. Yeah, we follow. Is that way? Whatever you know what I mean. Right? <laughs> so, so, um, so I know she's busy and I know she's harassed, but I want my sweet potato fries, and so 
I might get that look on my face. And it's universal. We do the same body motions that dogs do. You sort of duck your head. You may turn it to the side a little bit. Um, you know, you sort of squinch your shoulders down. You turn your head. You get a particular voice on and you say, I'm so sorry. I know you're so busy, but is there any chance you could ask the cook if he would switch out the fries, right? That's appeasement. And it's a what appeasement is, is there's a potential somebody's going to get mad at me and I'm trying to cut it off. It's a cutoff signal. Biologists call, talk about cutoff signals. It's basically trying to prevent a future behavior from another individual that you can expect might happen in that context. So that's, you know, when you come home from Wherever you're gone, you come home, your dog has chewed up the pillow or peed on the carpet, and your dog is looking at you with that, quote, guilty face. It's not guilt. It's appeasement. It's, I chewed up the pillow. Don't get mad at me. And even if you don't know the dog's chewed up a pillow yet, and this is the hardest thing for people to understand, which I totally get because it seems illogical. You haven't seen the pillow yet, right? You open the door. Your dog has got that look on his face. And But you don't even know anything's happened until you see your dog's face, right? And then you know, like, oh, yeah, something happened that shouldn't have happened, right? <coughs> Excuse me. So so you see your dog's face and you're like, yeah, something happened. You don't even know what it is yet. But, um, but again, that's appeasement because the dog has learned to put these contexts together. Mm-hmm. Chewed up pillow, human at the door, entering the house, potential of trouble, I'm going to look appeasing. Well, that's an interesting point there because when we talk about training, we always think that, you know, we want the the reward or the punishment to be as soon or as close to the behavior as possible. And when you have that kind of situation where you're coming home and the the pillow could have been chewed up, you know, an hour ago, right. for the dog to make any kind of connection there is is quite interesting. And and impossible, right? So you know, how I mean, so how can, does that work then? How how does it dog- possible? I I should say that in a different way. Um, impossible in the sense the dog is not going to be able to make the connection the next day when you're gone, right? You're out of the house, so it's impossible in terms of changing the behavior. It's not impossible as you were as you were saying, and I sort of went ahead of you. Sorry, but as you were saying, they absolutely can make the connection between those events. But, you know, that's not a training opportunity because because what's happening right then is you seeing the pillow, but it's not about the dog initiating the behavior towards chewing the pillow. That's going to happen next the next day at two in the afternoon, right? So that still applies. You know, if you're trying to give a dog a consequence, no matter what it is, to a behavior, it has to happen in real time, relatively close to that. But, you know, when a dog greets you at the door, it's not about to chew on a pillow, right? So those things, and that's another thing, it's really important to tease those those things apart. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I, I think I know what you're saying. So you're saying that the dog knows that it's basically put these two things together. When there is a pillow that's chewed up on the floor and my owners come home, bad things happen. Exactly. As opposed exactly. to the link between the behavior as opposed to if I chew the pillow. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So there's a moment in time in a dog's brain where there's a pillow and he's looking at it and, and starts to chew on the pillow. That's a discrete moment of time and a discrete sort of neurological event. That's completely separate from the from a different discrete event, which is there is a chewed pillow, right? Um, I chewed hours ago, but there's a chewed pillow behind me and there's an owner in front of me that's a those are completely different events so So when you you know i mean i come home and my dogs have done something they knocked a plan over you know this happened that happened it's you just you basically have to literally grin and bear it you walk in and you go like oh hi you chewed on that pillow that was my favorite pillow i'm so sorry i ever got you (laughs) <laughs> I, I will say things that aren't very nice sometimes, but but um, always in a happy voice because, uh, right? Otherwise, yeah, yeah, you're just cool. going to be afraid when you come home. Yep. One of the things you, you said when we were starting this conversation was about guilt is an important emotion for a social species. 
And I was wondering if if you don't think dogs experience guilt, are there species that you you feel do experience guilt? Oh, and I'm glad you asked that because Trish King was just a brilliant trainer and I had a conversation once. I was giving this talk about guilt and she said, I'm pushing back on you. I don't think you can say that dogs never experience guilt. And and I'm glad you asked that question because I I wouldn't say they can never experience guilt. What I would say is that it's much more rare probably in dogs than it is in humans. And um, most of what people interpret as guilt is appeasement. And that's different. So it's a really good question, Nick. I I would not say dogs can never feel guilty. Um, but it's it's... It's interpreted, you know, there, I get, I'm just repeating myself. I think, I think what's appeasement is so often interpreted as guilt that sometimes I, you know, I might push against it too, too far. But, but I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I can imagine circumstances in which dogs have or could. Again, we're totally speculating. This is, this is what, where some of the new MRI work could be really interesting. What part of the brain of a human lights up when they're guilty? Hmm. Does the same part of a dog's brain light up when it's guilty? I don't know. That would, you know, that's something for future years. Well, I'm, I'm also wondering if there's a distinction between guilt and regret. Can, can a dog feel regret? Because guilt, it kind of implies that you've, you've almost empathy, right? Like you feel, feel bad for the other person. Whereas regret is just... You just feel bad that you or you you regret making that decision. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, wow. Yeah, I need to ponder that for a while. I love that question. I think guilt and regret are different. Absolutely, I agree with you there. You know, regret is often um, can be about something you didn't do, right? Yeah. Well, we're talking um, about that with trauma, so. and and so you can feel guilty that you didn't send a thank you card. <laughs> Right, to your grandmother. Um, but you can also regret it. And I think, you know, just really literally thinking out loud, I, there are people um, who have thought about this a great deal. Um, that would be fun to go to go talk to. And you, you've inspired me to do that now. But, um, but, you know, I think part of what the difference between guilt and regret might be is I just thinking out loud, I see regret as something very personal, where guilt is more about, as I said, social conventions, social mm. rules, um, where regret, you know, so I, I broke a, a cultural or a social um, rule, you know, policy, belief system, versus I regret personally as an individual person that I did or did not do something. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it also kind of opens up the idea of social norms because dogs are obviously going to have different social norms to humans yeah like eat whatever food you can when it's in front of you <laughs> <laughs> yeah what well, eric right? my friend eric always says um uh, regarding um h how kind of a gray area it can get when we start going down this idea of, of how we treat our dogs because dogs might be hugely offended that we don't sniff their butts do you, know, do you know what I mean? There's like a I love it. Yes, it's <laughs> a, a different social um, expectation there. Oh, absolutely. And what you know, I think one of my primary questions is: Do dogs think we can that we have the power of smell at all, or do they think because we're so bad at it that like humans used to think animals can't think, right? Because they don't think like we do. So, I mean, for centuries and centuries, those animals can't think. They have no cognition. They're just sort of little automatons reacting to external stimuli, um, which, of course, isn't true. But but I think beca be became believed because dogs can't create microscopes and, you know, invent post-it notes and <laughs> all the things we can do. But we're so bad at smelling, at using the sense of smell do dogs just think like, I guess they just can't do it at all? That's a really good place to uh, start wrapping it up because people are going to leave thinking about that now. <laughs> oh, good. I so, love curiosity. Where can people find out more about you, Patricia? Oh, thanks for asking. They can certainly go to my website, which is go to my name, patriciamcconnell.com. On there, there's there, um, there are the books and DVDs I produce, but there's also a learning center, which has 
lots and lots and lots of free information about just about every topic I can think of. And then my blog, The Other End of the Leash, is a weekly international discussion about the relationship between us and dogs and other animals. It's really fun for me. Um, so I hope people jump onto that. It's a great, it's a great, very thoughtful conversation that many of us all around the world have. Well, thanks so much for coming on. That was brilliant. Well, thank you for asking me, Nick. It was my pleasure and keep doing all the good work that you're doing. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want to find all of Patricia's links without searching all over the internet, then just go to nickbenger.com slash Patricia hyphen McConnell. And this podcast was sponsored by Butternut Box, really cool British company that makes healthy, natural dog food. One of the few companies that has a five-star rating on All About Dog Food. It's great for dogs that are fussy eaters or have sensitive stomachs. And for people that listen to this podcast, you can get a 75% offer by going to butternutbox.com slash nickbenger. Also, if you're struggling to get your dog to stop running off the moment you let the lead off, or you're a dog walker or a dog trainer and you're just fed up of the conventional wisdom when it comes to recall training just thinking that all you can do is teach a dog to come back when you say come there's so much more to it than that there's so much that's being missed out upon so if you want a brief introduction to engagement then go to www.barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide all right guys see ya